theme, the idea behind it is the idea of waiting to go home. We're told by Peter that we are here just traveling pilgrims, we're sojourners and pilgrims on this earth, and that we are looking for a land that we're going to forever. And so what I want to do today is talk about heaven, but more specifically, what's waiting for us there? What's there when we finally get home? The Bible is very clear about a couple of things about heaven. It's a little ambiguous about what it will look like, what it will feel like, what it really is in the spiritual realm, but we know some comforting things from Scripture about heaven being our home, and when we get there, what will be waiting for us. Let's begin our conversation in the book of Hebrews this morning. I want to begin by saying that when we get to heaven, most importantly, our family will be there. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 2. I'll begin reading in verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, because it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect or complete through suffering, because he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, and that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, verse 13, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So the Hebrews author here is convinced that talking about Jesus being the best, that's the whole theme of Hebrews, is how is Jesus the best when it comes to our spiritual selves. He's talking about Christ being the source through whom all of us can be called the children of God. He was the Son of God and he opened the doors for all of us who believe and obey his gospel to be called the children of God. And so in the big picture, when we go to heaven, our home, what's waiting for us is our spiritual family. All of us here can trace our lineage back, not just in this country, but eventually back to Adam and Eve. And we're all one kindred race by that particular bond. But more significant than that is the idea of our spiritual identity. We can all, if we're Christians, trace our origin back to we are a child of God because Jesus loved us, died for us, and gave us the good news to bring us into that family. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10 now. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author has an interesting way to tie all of this together to, together to try to prove that Jesus is the best, he's the superior one, by reflecting not just on people who are in Christ, but folks that were um, under the Old Testament law as well and died by faith. Let's begin reading in chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law, talking about the law of Moses, was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of those realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that they continually offer each year, make perfect or complete those who draw near. 
Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. And then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the books. When he said that which was written above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, those offered by the law of Moses. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So again, big picture here. When we get to heaven, our home, we know that people that are in Christ, our family, in a spiritual sense, will be waiting for us. But more than that, those that lived under the law of Moses, they were reminded every single year on the Day of Atonement that there is still sin in your life. Is passed forward by the offerings. Next year, there's still sin in your life. Sacrifice was made. Next year, there's still sin in your life. And so they were perpetually looking forward to a time in which the perfect Lamb of God would be offered and the sins wouldn't just be rolled on to the next year to be truly forgiven. And they received that promise ultimately by the death of Jesus Christ. Those that were died by faith in the law of Moses, and those saved by grace in the new covenant will be waiting for us. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 12 now. Beginning in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages would be spoken to them. Again, this is a kind of a flashback to the book of Exodus. When the Israelites passed through the Red Sea, they made their way to Mount Oreb, where Moses originally got the message from God that he was to be the redeemer of the people, the mediator of this covenant. When the people approached that mountain, and they heard the voice of God, they were terrified and said, we can't talk to our God like this. Verse 20, For if they could not endure the order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But in contrast to that fear of approaching God's kingdom, verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the, innu- uh, the innumerable angels in uh, feastal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to this Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So again, to tie these three thoughts together, 
we know that people that are faithfully found in Christ, our spiritual family, will be waiting for us. We know that the people under the law of Moses were redeemed not by the offerings of bulls and goats, but by ultimately the blood of Jesus Christ looking back at those that died faithfully. And also we know that moving forward, all of us will be one family in Christ, in the church, together forever with God and with our Lord. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. So Romans is a great book. In this chapter we learn... In this section, really, we learn a whole lot about what the gospel does for us when it comes to redemption. In chapter 5, we've all committed sin. In chapter 6, we know that through the good news, we go down to the watery grave of baptism. We experience the death, the burial, and then the resurrection of coming out of that water. A type of what Jesus did by dying on the cross going into the tomb, and being raised to walk in newness of life. We experience that same thing in a spiritual sense when we obey the good news of Christ. In Romans chapter 7, we learn that although we're in Christ, we still have this nagging part of us that's fleshly and human and worldly that wants to pull us away from that experience we have with Christ. And then in chapter 8, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. And here in this text, we learn the ultimate benefit of experiencing that resurrection to the new gospel is that we realize that we're not just born again just to be simple slaves of God, but we're born again to be a child of God. And being a child of God has inherent benefits, mainly that we are now able to call Jesus the Lord, the Creator, Emmanuel, God with us, not just our Lord, but our brother as well. And if we can say that Christ, that Jesus, the Messiah, is our brother, we know God is our Father, and we are all one family under Him, the blessing of heaven is a great one indeed. So what's waiting for us in heaven? Well, first and foremost, we have to realize our family is going to be there. The people that we have grown closest to in this lifetime and those that we still talk about their lives have been dead for centuries, they're waiting for us as well. Next, we talk about what's waiting for us in heaven. This one's a bit more intangible, so bear with me. Our hope is there. Hope is one of those things that's so hard to define, and 
through vocabulary or even biblically because hope is one of those things that we talk about. Well, I hope this happens for you or I hope this happens tomorrow. Hope is one of those things that is a well wish. We wish something nice would happen to us. That's our hope. But biblically, the idea of hope is a bit more beyond that. It explains the idea that it's connected to faith, connected to belief, and our hope is not just a wish something nice would happen to us. It's a concrete promise given by God that we look forward to. Let's begin in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. I love the books of First and Second Peter because I know a whole lot about Peter. <laughs> Reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I can see myself in Peter's shoes or sandals a lot because he talked a good bit. If you didn't know, I'm paid to talk for a living, so I see some common ground. He also had a, the perfect way of saying the exact right thing in crucial moments. But more often than not, he would say the exact wrong thing to Jesus in that moment. And I'm really good at sometimes just knocking it out of the park. And other times just saying the exact wrong thing in a wrong situation. So I see a lot of myself in Peter. In reading his epistles, you see his maturity. You see his growth. I'm not saying I'm there. I'm saying I'm, I'm aspiring. I'm hoping to be like Peter one day, right? So 1 Peter chapter 1, let's begin reading in verse 3. This is how he opens his epistle. Hopefully we're all familiar somewhat with how Paul begins. He begins in a very standard way. It's a Pauline style, we call it. But Peter's a little bit different. 1 Peter 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, very Pauline almost. Who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again, or born us again, we'd say, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Don't forget, this is the same Peter that raced John to the tomb. And John had to include that he won that foot race, as John often does an old man writing that book. But Peter raced to the tomb to see the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He was on that fishing boat all night waiting to catch some fish, and he saw Jesus on the shore, and he just dove in the water and swam to him. This is the same Peter talking about the hope through the resurrection of Jesus the Christ from the dead, verse 4, to an inheritance that's incorruptible. I hear an echo of Matthew chapter 6, 7. The idea of laying up our treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy our inheritance, right? It's undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Do you know what a reservation is? I really hope you do at this point in your life, right? You call a hotel or get on your phone and try to make a reservation for a room. You call a restaurant or use an app to make a reservation for a table. We say, hey, we're on our way. We'll be here at that location at this time, and here's what I need, a room or a table, right? Peter is using the same phraseology. He's saying, listen, you've already got the reservation. You've already sent in your RSVP, whatever in the world that acronym stands for. <laughs> Something French, right? 
So he's saying, listen, if you're a part of this journey, if you're a part of the family, you should know you've got a room that you've reserved waiting for you in the Father's house. And that hope is through the resurrection. 1 Peter chapter 1, down to verse 13 now. Therefore, because of all that, gird up the loins of your mind. And I love the way that I have to explain that every time because I don't know what that means if I don't explain it. So back in the day, guys didn't wear pants. Can you believe it? They had these long things that would cover them. Apparently it's better for airflow if you're hot. Maybe we should make it a comeback in middle Georgia. It's pretty warm around here. So you've got this long tunic that you're wearing, right? You've got a waistband, you've got a belt on. But if you're trying to run, apparently, in a dress, it's not that easy for you. Never had personal experience with that, by the way. So the idea of girding up your loins is literally pulling up the bottom of your tunic and tying it around your waistband so that you are free with your legs to move around. So when he says, gird up the loins, he's talking about pulling up that tunic and getting ready to run or for war, right? Gird up the loins of your mind. Make sure that mentally you are always prepared and ready to be useful. The situation calls for it. Be sober, literally be someone who is thinking clearly, right? And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, the idea of hope here is not just, well, I wish, or wouldn't it be nice if. He's saying here, you have a reservation waiting for you, and that is your hope. That's the promise of Jesus the Messiah. If you go to a restaurant with your wife, or your date, whoever it may be, and you pull up and she goes, do we have a reservation? You go, well, I sure hope so. Not very confident. <laughs> when Jesus says, you need to put your hope and your trust and your faith because there's a reservation waiting for you in heaven, it means a bit more, doesn't it? A bit stronger. Finally, in 1 Peter chapter 1, down to verse 21 now. Peter writes this. He was indeed foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for you. Talking about Jesus. It's interesting how we have these questions sometimes. And the questions go something like, well, if God knew that mankind was going to commit sin, why would he begin to make us in the first place? If he knew we were going to fall, if we knew there was a chance for us to be lost, why make us in the first place? Well, according to Peter, it's because he already had the plan in place in his mind to redeem us from that sin. That's how long this plan's been going on. But Peter's saying now it's clear, it's manifest to us that he appeared to be our Messiah. Verse 21, Who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and what? Hope are in God. So what's waiting for us in heaven? First and foremost, our family. Those who are in Christ, those who died by faith in the Old Testament law, those will be waiting for us in heaven. And I can assure you, I've got some questions for those guys when I meet them. Right? What else is there? Our hope is there. Not just the I wish or I hope that. It's the idea of I've got my hope 
for eternity reserved by Jesus the Messiah waiting for me. I'm going to claim that reservation. I want to get that room in my Father's house. That's waiting for us. Next, this one hopefully is a bit more tangible. Our things are there. <laughs> Our stuff, I would say it. Our stuff's waiting for us. Have you ever moved your house before? You haven't? Oh, okay. If you've moved your stuff before, you realize how much stuff you accumulate. Right? Got a couple of boxes of stuff you haven't touched in a decade, and you're going to move it anyway. Pack it on the U-Haul. Bring it with us. Right? When it comes to our home here in this world, we associate our home with our stuff. If you go to a hotel room, it doesn't feel like home because your stuff's not there. Like your dog's not waiting for you, your cat's not there, your pictures aren't there, your TV's not even there, your stuff's not even there, right? It's just a place to kind of go for a little while. And ironically, when it comes to talking about the idea of heaven, we know that we're just passing through this life. And our material things, our stuff that we love so much, doesn't really matter at the end of the day. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 17. Paul had an interesting way of looking at stuff or material things because he didn't have a whole lot, it seems. So writing to the young preacher Timothy, young being probably around 38 or so. That joke was a lot funnier when I was 20 as a preacher, but anyway. First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17, Paul writes, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty or prideful, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Certain irony there, if you dig into the actual language, because he's saying you're trusting in the things that are here in this age or this world, and they're not going to be there for you. You should, in fact, trust in God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So it's a blessing that we receive physical, material things, right? But it's not the end-all, be-all. Verse 18, let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. So those who are rich in this present world should also be rich and share what they have for the next world. A little irony going on here, right? I've got a thing called a Roth IRA. You know what that is? Hopefully you do, if you're an adult, right? It's the idea of me setting aside a certain portion of my income for the future. Whatever that looks like. I'm ready to retire. Retire. <laughs> right? I am laying up a certain amount of my income every single paycheck. And it's supposed to be waiting for me when I get to the age of quote-unquote retirement, right? Now, I've seen my charts I've seen the stocks, and I've seen it go up, and then go down, and then go up, and down more, and then down more, and then down... Uh, so I see 
that I know there's some fluctuation when it comes to the idea of inflation and investing in retirement, right? That's a bit of a gamble, you know? But I know it's not a gamble. When it comes to my physical existence, I don't know what the future holds, right? If you know my future, please let me know. But I don't know what this world has in store for me. But when it comes to my spiritual life, the real life that matters, my eternity, I'm told where to invest my time, my efforts, and even my money by doing good works. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19 through 21, this is a familiar passage to many of us. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. One of the first discourses ever from God in a body, God in the flesh. If God had to give you a sermon, a portion of it was, make sure you don't trust too much in the physical things that you accumulate in this world. That was so important, God had to say that to his people. Make sure you don't trust too much in your things. The guy who spoke all the things that ever existed and will ever exist, spoken into existence. Make sure you don't lose the big picture. Your stuff doesn't matter that much in this world. Where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then verse 21 is the key. Why was God so focused on make sure you don't trust in your physical possessions? Verse 21, for or because where your treasure is, your heart is there also. Now I can fool you about what my treasure in my life is. I can tell you the truth or tell you a lie. I have a hard time proving it. But the guy who knows my mind better than I do, my creator, knows where I'm putting my treasure. Is it on his word, in his kingdom, doing his will, shining the light in the world, or is it, you know, a nice little cushion, just in case God doesn't come through this time? <laughs> Never had that thought before, right? What's waiting for us? Our family's waiting for us. Our hope, our reservation's waiting for us. And our spiritual stuff is waiting for us. I'm not sure what that looks like. I have no idea. But I know it's more for sure and guaranteed than the stock market is. Finally, this is the most important one. If you don't get anything else from my sermon today, it's entirely possible that you don't. But if you don't get anything else, this next one is it. Our Father is waiting for us. Our Father is waiting for us. He's ready for us to come home, to meet Him face to face, finally. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6, Paul put it this way, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him. What's man's purpose? To be with God. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. Paul has a great way of sometimes having a thought and then taking a tangent. I don't know who else would do that. 
He has a thought about being one, being unified, being together, being unified, being, being one in Christ. And he just says, you know what, just, just for a second, see this. There's one God the Father, and he made us for him. And there's one Lord Jesus Christ, and we live through him. If they can be one, we can be one. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, again, a part of that Sermon on the Mount, if God had to give you a sermon, that was it. And part of that was, I want to tell you how you talk to God your Father. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. The recognition that our Father is listening to us Whenever we open our mouths, it's a great blessing indeed. The guy you've been talking to your whole Christian life is waiting for you to show up at his front door. And then John chapter 14. I love this text. I often use it during funerals. As a reminder for everybody. That Jesus lived this life, he had a purpose, he had a role to fulfill, but he also didn't want to leave his friends hanging. <laughs> what they were expecting of Jesus, the Messiah, was like King David, right? To go up to Jerusalem, kick all the people that were there out, kick out the Romans, and to rule from the throne of David for his entire generation. That was their idea. And he goes, guys, it's not going to happen like that at all. John 14, verse 1. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be upset. I love the fact that Jesus, to his friends, at the very last kind of moment, says, don't be upset, guys. He cared about their emotional well-being. You believe in God, believe in me. If you trust God to come through, trust me. I'm coming through for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. I know you want your mansions. It's not there in the original. Sorry. My Father's house are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you. I'm making a reservation right now. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is the Son of God for sure. He was the Lamb of God. He was the perfect sacrifice, higher than the angels. But when it comes to Him being our Messiah, let's not forget He again is God with us. And God said, I'm going to make your reservation. I'm preparing a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. Most importantly, what is waiting for us in heaven? When we finally get there, our family's there, our hope is there, our spiritual stuff is there, whatever that looks like in heaven, I have no idea. But most importantly, our God is there. The one that we're praising, that we're thanking, this morning, together in an assembled way, lifting our voices and hearts and our minds up to Him and praising Him for all He's done for us, He's waiting for us to come home. That's the big picture. 
There's so many things in Scripture that's talked about. We have nuance, we have details, we have miracles, we have parables, we have the regulations by which we are to live acceptable before God in this world. But again, zooming all the way out, we are on a path, and that path has an end, and that end never ends. God is waiting for us to come home. This morning, if anyone has a need to respond to the invitation of our Lord, we have a moment to look inward, to see where we are in light of all of these things, to see that we are on that path going towards heaven, rejoicing. Our family, our hope, our things, and our God are all waiting for us when we get to the end of that road. If you have any doubts... Any questions, any fears, that means you're human. Welcome. (laughs) The Word of God is there to comfort us and to give us guidance to what we are to do, what we are to know. If we can help you at all this morning, obey the gospel, come back to Him through repentance, or just pray for your encouragement, because we're all one big spiritual family. If we can help you at all, respond by coming forward now to stand and we sing.